Hey, this is Robin. That's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, get up, get on up. It's time for James Brown. Micaiah and I have each nominated a James Brown album for this season. And in many ways, these two albums both break our usual format. Micaiah has nominated the 1963 live album Live at the Apollo, and I have nominated the 1991 Greatest Hits Collection, 20 All-Time Greatest Hits, which was released essentially as the single-disc version of the Star Time box set. Micaiah, what do we need to know up front about our James Brown picks? Yeah, I haven't chosen a lot of live albums. In fact, as I'm thinking about now, this might be the only one I've, the only live album I've nominated so far, and the only ones that I plan to nominate eventually a little bit later will still also be like from this era. And yet, this live album from 1963 is, I think, an important document itself uh, uh, an artistic document and a historical document um, from who is potentially the most influential artist across you know all the decades spanning since he was making music in the 50s and across probably the most genres also yeah I, I think I agree with that if we're looking for a single artist who has had not just an influence, but the widest possible influence, it would be, you would be hard pressed to name someone who has been more influential on pop music in general, other than James Brown. Uh, that, that seems to be pretty undeniable. And so for me, I love James Brown so much. And, and I have nominated a greatest hits compilation. Now this is the third greatest hits compilation that I have nominated. I also nominated Chuck Berry's the great 28, which we did in season one. And I also nominated in season one, though I did not nominate this season, Al Green's greatest hits. I love star time. And and I think it should be said if, if we didn't in our very first episode agree that doing a box set was against the rules then my nomination for James Brown would have been the star time box set. The 20 all-time greatest hits, which is essentially the best of the star time box set was my kind of cheat way of really trying to say, Hey, I think it should be the whole of star time. But if we have to limit it to just these 20 songs, these 20 songs on 20 all-time greatest hits. Now, of course, the reason for that is these songs are phenomenal. These are some of the most famous, most ubiquitous songs in history. You've got I Got You, I Got the Feeling, Mother Popcorn, Give It Up or Turn It Loose, Make It Funky, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, It's a Man's Man's World, Try Me, Night Train, Cold Sweat, Get On the Good Foot, Papa Don't Take No Mess, The Payback, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, Super Bad, get up off of that thing and please, 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 among others. I mean, man, it's, it's undeniable that these are great songs. And it, of course it would be considering 
how long and illustrious of a career that James Brown had. And these are kind of 20 hits that span his whole career. Of course, this is going to be an incredible collection of music. The question we've got to really face is this. Is a compilation, especially a compilation put together like this one, does a compilation really function as an album? Or does it function just as a really great mix CD? Um, and, and and also a compilation this far removed from the era, right? That it's compiling from, right? Because oh, we also had have because we also had half full of hollow by the Smiths, mm-hmm. a compilation, but all it's a compilation of singles, right? Yeah, from yeah. that time, like within like the span, like a year of it being released, you know. So, Grade Twenty Eight comes out in nineteen eighty two even though the records are from 1955 to 1964 comes in 1982. Right. So about rock and roll's 25th anniversary, you know what I mean? So it seems like that there's intentional and why it's coming out at that time in the eighties. And also cause like the fifties America is like coming back in the 1980s. Also this, this new kind of, you know, the big actor from the 1950s Reagan, you know, is now present. So there seems to be more nostalgia for the fifties than ever, you know? So I, uh, you also nominated sign the family stones, greatest hits, right? 1970. Right. That's true. Now, by the time we recorded the episode, I had actually changed that to stand. Right. And that, and that even made more sense because it was right. Stand was just, was a hugely successful album. They put all the singles from that plus their previous singles, right. Gave them a second chance on that greatest hits LP. And it's the thing that's the bridge between stand and there's a riot going on. Mm-hmm. Right. So even that record makes more sense than a compilation of songs from the sixties and seventies that's made like in the nineties in the CD era. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, it's, it's, it's to me seems so far removed from the time that it is just. Songs. Yeah. And that in, in look, admittedly is, is we're going to talk about today. I think that, if I'm leaning any way, I, I'm probably leaning more towards Live at the Apollo than 20 all-time greatest hits for the simple fact that Live at the Apollo is a unique album. And 20 all-time greatest hits is just one of about 23 different James Brown hit collections. Right. Well, so and it's it, a compilation it, of the compilation. You know? Yeah, I mean, that, that's really what it is. It is It is the compilation of Star Time. It is It is a best of a best of. Yeah. Whereas I'm, you know, in favor for this episode of Life of the Apollo, which is, is a singular document. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Micaiah, you and I met in St. Augustine, Florida at Flagler College. Yep. And today... Our guest on the podcast is your former professor, Dr. Michael Butler. Yes. Dr. Butler is very important to me um, because uh, he taught a class, a very popular class on the history department that was history of rock and roll. And um, one of the books that he has signed in that class was on James Brown. Um, so I knew when it came time to, to talk about James Brown, right? He was, kind of the top of my list of people to reach out to. I mean, that's also the first time I wrote a paper on just an album, you know, uh, which, you know, I kind of credit that classes to being the reason why I am now, you know, being uh, lucky enough to get to write about the clash, 
you know, so um, indebted to him in, in a number of ways. Yeah. Very exciting uh, to have him on the podcast today to talk about uh, James Brown and to talk about uh, the Southern music tradition and uh, kind of U S history kind of in general and how that kind of, you know, the, how U S history is also the history of pop culture. So listener, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to let you hear about today's independent record store of the week located in St. Augustine, Florida, tone vendor records. And we're going to let you hear from our sponsor anchor. And then we will be back with Dr. Michael Butler. Hey, this is Rob, and I'm so excited to tell you about our independent record store of the week, St. Augustine, Florida's own Tone Vendor Records. Tone Vendor is located at 81D King Street in St. Augustine, Florida. They are open seven days a week from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. You can reach them by phone at area code 904-342-7981. You can find them online at ToneVendor.com, where you can shop their more than 20,000 record inventory all online. We encourage you to go check out ToneVendor.com today and pick up any of James Brown's albums from ToneVendor. I, I am a Dr. Butler. I am um, the Keenan Distinguished Professor of History at Flagler College in St. Augustine, Florida, where I've taught since 2008. Um, I teach a variety of classes in the African-American Southern cultural history realms, uh, including a, a rock and roll history class. So uh, right now, one of the projects that I'm working on is a popular history of black cultural representation between 1965 and 1975. And the first chapter that I wrote was actually on James Brown. Um, And yeah, exposure to James Brown came at a uh, a really young age. It's one of the the benefits I I think of growing up in in a home that loved music was that I got exposed to a variety of different music uh, from uh, the, the, the Beatles, Rolling Stones to Paul Revere and the Raiders and the Supremes. Uh, and James Brown was in that mix. Of course, uh, it was always I've got you. I feel good. Right. I think that's everybody's uh, entry into the world of James Brown. So, uh, you know, James Brown was always somebody who stood out as a, uh, a black musician, incredible performer, who even within that realm of black popular music was different. 
He was different than Motown. He was different than the Four Tops. He was different than Otis Redding and um, all of the people who came from Stax. So I I can't remember a time where I didn't know who James Brown was as a very short answer uh, or a, 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 a short cap on a really long answer. Well, let's let's go ahead and get into that, because I love that you brought up that James Brown, he was he was not unique in the generation he was a part of or even where he was from. But he was different in comparison to the other popular artists that he is often kind of grouped with. So for you, what is what is it about him? What is it about James Brown that makes him so unique, that makes him so set apart from the rest of that group? I think the fact that. He wasn't as polished and commodified for a white market like Motown. Um, that's one of the starting points. The fact that he um, brought elements of the black church into his music um, and the performance style, right? Uh, seeing James Brown juxtaposed to the Temptations is a totally different animal. Um so, you know, the more I've learned about James Brown, he stands out because he is much more Southern, much more authentic, much more raw. And when you learn about his backstory and you learn about his history, it makes perfect sense. Uh, the, you know, self-produced, self-funded in terms of owning the rights to his music and controlling the production process. You know, one of the albums that we're going to talk about today, Live at the Apollo, um, that was not going to be put out by a record label with a lot of money and attention behind it because live albums just didn't sell. And James Brown argued that, well, you can't know who James Brown is without having the live experience. For a variety of different reasons, I think the, the fact that he was so different. He had the Chitlin Circuit experience. He had opened for Little Richard. Um, he had toured with Otis Redding, half in the black church, half out until he realized you can't do both, or uh, or at least that there was more money in one than the other. Um, and the fact that he produced black music for black people, and if whites happen to listen and enjoy it, good. But if not, He's not trying to sell to a predominantly white audience because that was not how he came up in the music business. So, you know, even the sound, as you learn more about James Brown, the person and the process, you know, the fact that he is uh, from South Carolina and then, um, of course, Georgia, moved to Georgia uh, with his father at a young age, then, uh, you know, you understand what contributes to the uniqueness of the James Brown sound.
I love that you mentioned the ways in which he brought the black church experience with him. And it's something that, especially in the South, there is such, it is such a unique and particular culture and experience. And it is absolutely one that you hear, even him performing, like you said, at Live at the Apollo, here's him performing in Harlem. And there you very clearly hear sounds from Southern black Pentecostal churches in the sound of this live recording in Harlem. I mean, it is, it is very, the through line connecting those two things could not be clearer. If, if you've seen that experience, if you, if you, if you understand that, that background a little bit for our listeners who may not help us connect to those dots and, and why that uh, the experience of coming out of a black church plays such a huge role specifically in the way that James Brown not just leads his band, but the way he performs in concert? Ah, that's a great question, Rob. So the black Southern church, one of the, the words that you use there that I think is most important is the Pentecostal tradition, right? You said the Pentecostal church, Otis Redding was from a Baptist tradition. Mm -hmm. The Pentecostal tradition is different. It's much more expressive. It's much more personal. It's much more emotive where spirit and feeling and participation in the religious ceremony means more than anything else. Um, Within the Pentecostal church, there is a very clear um, tradition of the vocational minister. In other words, the minister is somebody who probably didn't go to seminary. They work outside of the church right, to earn a living. So it is a very emotional, feelings-based, experiential expression of enthusiasm and being baptized in the Holy Spirit, right? Um, so the, the shouts, the dance moves, that comes from the tradition of being in a quote-unquote holy roller church where the more emotive you are, the more filled with the Holy Spirit one is, right? So there's a fine line between uh, being immersed in the Holy Spirit within the Pentecostal tradition and being a performer in the black clubs where you hear great music all the time. Many people wanted to see a show, especially mm-hmm. when you're opening for Little Richard, <laughs> right? So um, that, that Southern religious tradition within the Pentecostal vein is what's so important because the emphasis is on the emotion and it's on the personal experience. Um, So the shouts that James Brown utilized, that comes from the black church. Uh, The moves that he used, he just took from the black church into the clubs and, you know, they became the mashed potato, right? Um, So in sound, repetitive, simple lines said over and over and over again in different ways that encapsulates the black church, whether it's, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. I love the Lord. Um, Or it's another religious hymn that sang over and over and over again. Brown brought that into his performances and that absolutely was not the lyrical stylings of Motown 
Stacks, or even the um, the other forerunners of rock and roll like uh, Chuck Berry and mm-hmm. Little Richard. Um, it's just very, very different. And that's what makes it, I think, uniquely Southern in that presentation and in that style. I'll add one more word uh, that's important to the religious experience, and that is ecstasy. Very, right? Yes. There's, you know, uh, the, the ecstasy of that experience. It, it is that powerful an emotion that is like, you know, that ecstasy, right? And that is integrated very easily into R&B music, early rock and roll music. Uh, and it becomes that conversation between the sacred and the profane and that blurred line between the experiences looking the same. Absolutely. That's a, a, a great word to throw into being possessed by the Holy spirit does bring in that tradition, great ecstasy. It's not something that you're afraid of. It's not something you try to avoid. It's actually something you seek out. Um, and what, what Brown does is really transform that experience from the church to the audience mm-hmm. when he's performing in the, in the secular spaces. Right. So uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Micaiah. the, the ecstasy is another important word to use when, when describing the, the style of James Brown. The other thing about it too, is that with the popularity of gospel within black homes during the time of James Brown, James Brown's coming of age, um, it was also a vehicle for black mobility. One of the only places where African-Americans could actually make it, quote unquote, was in the field of music or entertainment. And Brown himself understood that. And that was one of the reasons that he wanted to join a gospel quartet. You know, he wanted to make it in that vein. But he found out you're going to get a lot more money. You're going to get a lot more listeners, potential record buyers, if you go the secular route. So that that transformation, that uh, jump was not a, a big one to make, especially when for somebody who is, by his own admission, not very well educated, um, who did not want to do manual labor for the rest of his life, and had an experience in prison, the way out was music. Thank you, and thank you very kindly. It is indeed a great pleasure to present to you at this particular time, national and international known as the hardest working man in show business, man that's saying I'll go crazy. Try me. You've got the power. Think. If you want me, I don't mind. Bewildered. Million dollar seller lost someone. The very latest release, Night Train. Let's everybody shout and shimmy. Mr. Dynamite, the amazing Mr. Please Please himself, the star of the show, James Brown and the Famous Flame. There is, there is perhaps no one among that, that era of music who worked as hard, who was as diligent at 
constantly pushing, constantly performing. I mean, there's six or seven years in a row where he's doing 300 dates a year, if not more touring on top of releasing the albums that he's doing and, and all of this material. I'm, I'm wondering why is James Brown so important to music history? And, and then maybe if I can, let me specify that. Why is he so important to music history, particularly to the 60s, 70s, and what music looks like coming out of the influence of James Brown? So what is it, what is it that James Brown has meant in music history, and how do we see that play out today? I think one of the reasons that Brown is so influential in the history of uh, American popular music is because he is that rare performer, musician, singer who influences across the generations. He's not someone who reflects trends. James Brown was somebody who established musical trends. So we've got the importance of the live album. Brown was really the first person to market a live album, a live record, as his national coming out party to a whole different audience, right? Um, so the first time they heard him was, was live. So you've got that. You've got the differences between, uh, you know, we've already talked about, the differences between Brown and the black music that is going to be commodified and popularized in the 1960s with um, Motown in particular mm -hmm. um, and, and Stacks, um, he probably had more in common with the Southern artists of Stacks than definitely the Northern artists of Motown. But I believe that when Brown really hits his stride, as a cultural icon, it is with Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. Um, he is the one musical artist more than any other who navigated the space of segregations coming to an end, but the conditions that impact Black America are still with us. He was accused of being too moderate on the racial issues. He was um, always somebody who wanted to get involved in improving conditions for black Americans. And I'll, I'll come back to that because you really uh, begin to see a concerted effort that Brown made to move into this realm when he performed voluntarily. And James Brown didn't really do anything voluntarily unless, you know, he was getting some money when he actually went to Jackson, Mississippi and was the headliner at the James Meredith March concert in Jackson at Tougaloo College. Right. That's really the beginning of his. Oh, I want to do whatever it is I can do to support people who are marching and trying to make a way for our people, right? So you have that a couple of years later, uh, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud comes out and it becomes an anthem. And then he becomes the person who is most identified with the emergence of funk. James Brown becomes synonymous with funk. So we can go all the way from Try Me to Get On The Good Foot, funk, mm -hmm. Of course, he was only with them for about a year, but Bootsy Collins, um, Parliament Funkadelic, 
James Brown and the most sampled artist of the 20th century with the rise of hip hop and rap. So we can go all the way from pre-1960 American popular music all the way through the foundations of hip hop in its rise in the late 70s, early 80s. And he doesn't just reflect social change. He is actually inspiring musical change in the midst of a, a, a shifting America. And that's unique. You don't see many American artists who can boast of a public career representing black America from the pre-1960s era all the way through the 1990s. And James Brown is that figure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. that weird time with Nixon. Oh, that, you know, Micaiah, that whole Nixon thing for James Brown, that wasn't weird. It's really interesting that the single James Brown put out before I'm black and I'm proud say it loud was America is my home. And it was a defense of the United States in response to the Vietnam War protests before he did say it loud. I'm black, black and I'm proud that July say it loud was recorded. I believe in late August of that year, the previous July, he actually did a, a USO tour uh, in Vietnam. So, yeah. It, so his idea of uh, support the troops, you know, was way ahead of its time. The idea of, no, we, we, we fly the flag. America is my home. It's not perfect, but it's the best thing going. It was rooted in his sense of America taking a shoeshine boy who used to dance for, for nickels for soldiers at the Augusta, Georgia military base and elevate him into a multi, multi, multi millionaire. For him, economically speaking, that was the promise of America. That is America, my home. Mm-hmm. Nixon emphasized black capitalism, right? Now, that policy is debated, and the idea of using black capitalism as a way to sort of discourage activism and promote law and order and respectable middle class values, James Brown was all about that. You know, Mm -hmm. when it comes to loans for black entrepreneurs, when it came to um, and he had his own businesses, right? He had his own uh, chicken restaurants and he had his own green books saving stamps in communities where, you know, you would get little James Brown green stamps to turn in for a loaf of bread once you got so many. So all of these economic investments, which were very conservative in nature, James Brown looked at it as, oh, that's the vehicle that my people need to get ahead financially. Give me the tools to make it for my on my own and I'll do it because I'm the hardest working man in show business. I'm the hardest working man in America. That's the same kind of idea that he has with uh, living in America, you know, that, that it's not the greatest there are hard times, but it is the best country in the world because it gave a poor boy like me from Barnwell, South Carolina, this life and the ability to help others. So, you know, it's really weird to go from soul brother number one to sold brother number one, S-O-L-D, mm-hmm. in the black militant movement in less than six months. Mm. That's what happened, you know? And well, that goes uh, back to his his 
core religious upbringing, right? It's, it's not about religion. It's about my personal experience, right? That, that is how his world is based on his personal experience is what's the most treasured thing in, in your testimony. Right. That's right. Your personal relationship with God. I'm not talking about everybody else. I'm talking about the experience that I've had with worshiping a God who is real and a God who has blessed me. Well, blessings for him were things that he could not have imagined as a child. Right. Right. Um, So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, And his political beliefs were made based on personal experiences. Right. Richard Nixon asked him to perform at his inaugural ball. For Brown, that's all I need. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all I need. Yeah. And, and for our listeners, especially maybe for our younger listeners who are especially struggling, struggling to make sense out of all of this, something to, to bear in mind is the political landscape of the 50s and 60s and 70s southern United States look dramatically different than it looks today. And whereas the overwhelming majority of, of white middle-class Southerners were registered Democrats. And that, and, and so it was just very recently that that was a party that had really anything to offer. So it, it, there was a drastically changing Southern political backdrop as well. And so it, it may, you may be hearing us talk about this. And as an illustrator, you may be suddenly kind of writing off James Brown. Want to remind you more complicated, more complex than, than you might be wanting to give it credit for. That comes back to Nixon though, and his mm-hmm. Southern strategy like that. That's all part of it. It's why he also has Johnny cash come to the white house, you know, like he's, um, you know, yeah, I, I believe it was Dr. Butler who said, uh, students said, um, when they're like, oh, yeah, Nixon, he, he resigned. And then someone in class went, oh, that's smart. And Dr. Butler says, smart like Satan. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound like something that I would say off the cuff. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, Richard Nixon, again, this is not going to get off on the, the, the history podcast section of the show, Micaiah and Rob. But, uh, yeah, we could definitely do that. You can't understand Trumpism without understanding what Richard Nixon did for the Republican Party, period. And there's mm-hmm. a direct line there. And one of the, you know, it's very much if James Brown, hate playing the what if game, Micaiah knows this, but if James Brown were alive in 2016, he probably would have supported Donald Trump because Trump talked a good game about black access to commercial endeavors. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing that appeals to African-Americans who support Trump, you know, a self-made man up by his bootstraps. I mean, if Kanye was going to be in the Oval Office, you know damn well he would have had James Brown in the Oval Office. So, um, yeah, that would have that that's the modern equivalent. Right. When people say, oh, gosh, how did uh, where what happened to Kanye? It's like, no, he's always believed this. And that's the enduring fascination with James Brown. You can basically hear a history of a changing America by listening to his music. This is a man's world. This is a man's world. But it wouldn't be nothing, nothing without a woman or a girl. 
of studying music history and popular culture when popular culture and politics and history sort of come together you see glimpses into the lives of how history could have been different if not for these moments in time culturally um so um and and from then you know we've we've got what 68 um boston garden show then we have the um, America is my home, then say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. Um, after, and, and that was written in LA, before they had gone south to LA, they were actually in Oakland. And again, mm-hmm. another apocryphal story. Brown alluded to it, he never gave the details, but supposedly got a visit from the Black Panthers and asked, What are you doing for our people? Hmm. Um, and he was watching on television in LA with that on his mind. He saw a news story of another black person being beaten almost to death by police. And that was the impetus for stay out loud. I'm black and I'm proud. Um, so you go from that. And then within a year, you've got the song that I referenced and butchered. I don't want nobody to give me nothing. Open up the door. I'll get it myself. Mm-hmm. And, and that is economic conservatism and black capitalism in a song title, right. right? Then we move into funk and the emphasis. Well, I mean, I say move into, I don't want your listeners to think that this is, um, this is perfectly segmented, right? Because we had the emphasis on the one even before um, 66, 65 with uh, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, where the emphasis is on the first note. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one becomes the impetus for funk. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I think sex machine is where you really start to get the emphasis on, uh, funk as evolving as this new genre of black music. And it's going to totally supersede, um, any other type of, uh, African-American centric popular music in the, uh, the public realm. Take two eyes to make a pair. <laughs> Brother, we can't. 
to add that despite and Rob this kind of gets back to what you're saying about how you know politics weren't as heightened you know political affiliations wouldn't you wouldn't you know wouldn't be canceled as it were um, you know so the fact that Brown was affiliated with Nixon for that moment in time does not mean that the you know the those in the hip hop in the 1980s are going to discredit him and not use him, right? He is still right. foundational for Public Enemy, even. You know, Funky, Funky Drummer is sampled on many Public Enemy tracks, um, and and numerous other James Brown tracks. You know the they're they're very dependent on Brown, and not not just because of the drum breaks. Actual samples of James Brown become important to EPMD and uh, I think even the NWA and, and public enemy. And up to recently when we were talking about our Kendrick Lamar episode on to pimp a butterfly, the payback uh, lyrics from the payback are in King Kunta mm-hmm. and also the call and response and all that stuff. So it's still right. Affecting, you know, hip hop today as well as, you know, funk and any soul band, anyone who's performing soul music now, they're always going to be indebted to James Brown, Sam Cooke, Aretha. No, I mean, they're inescapable. But yeah. It's and to Rob's point, the, um, the, the taskmaster reputation that James Brown had meant that anybody who wanted to become a master of this music had to join James Brown's review for some period of time to get their bona fides, right? Because you are playing over 300 nights. You are being fined incredible amounts if your tie is not perfectly straight. If you miss a uh, a note, you can watch Brown's hand. And he's going to look at somebody and to the outside observer, it looks like he's just shaking his hand, but he's actually letting them know with his fingers how much money they've just been fined. And he would collect at the end of the night. Um, So, yeah, it's not just Brown's music, but it's the reputation he had as a as somebody who made musicians. You know, it was like the boot camp for uh, black art. But, yeah, we get to the point where in hip hop and like you said, with uh, Public Enemy, uh, with the Sugar Hill Gang, they're looking at James Brown not as the black dude that supported Nixon, they're looking at James Brown, sex machine. They're looking at James Brown as Papa's got a brand new bag. They're looking at James Brown as the king of funk, hardest working man in show business. They're looking at James Brown as the epitome of black manhood mm-hmm. with his shirt undone to his navel, with the elaborate jumpsuits, with the, uh, uh the oozing sexuality, uh, like you said, the payback, I'm mad. Um, he represented what it meant to be a strong, virile, self-assured black man. Everything else could be put to the side. And that's what hip hop really buys into is what it means to be a black man in a white man's world. Hey! Got, got the payback! Hey! 
Well, let's go ahead and get and get into the two albums that we want to talk about today. And let's start with um, an album that you've already referenced a number of times, an album that Micaiah has chosen as our representation of James Brown for the for the sake of the list we're putting together in this podcast. And that would be his 1963 album Live at the Apollo. This was the recording of the October 24th, 1962 concert at the Apollo Theater in Harlem, New York. And this is a relatively short concert, all things considered. This is a a concert album that if you grant that the seventh track on the album is a medley, essentially it's it's an eight-song album uh, that runs a total of about 34 minutes. I mean, this was not a long concert performance at all, but this is a very unique picture of maybe one of the most incredible live performers in music history. So mm-hmm. let's let's start here. What is so great about James Brown live at the Apollo? It captures the essence of James Brown in person in a way that a studio recording could not. It is the encapsulation of years on the road, playing the segregated Chitlin circuit, of trying new things, experimenting, and being in the mecca of Black performance, and that's the Apollo. So I think all those things... When James Brown's at the Apollo, he's not just a Southerner. He's an American artist, right? So it's taking him into the most important venue, even at that time. And even at that time, the crowds were notoriously hard on performers. And, you know, it's the whole idea of if I can get over at the Apollo, I can get over it anywhere. The energy, the frantic pace, the emotion, the near orgasmic ecstasy you can hear it not just in his performances but you can hear it in the crowd Mm -hmm. so when you can hear the crowd's reaction that's going to make people want to go see what the fuss is all about and again from the context of you know the 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 podcast live albums were not a thing they were not marketed because why would you want to hear why would you want to hear something that's not as recorded in a studio? Um, it, Brown flips that and basically says the introduction to me and who I am, like you said, 30 minutes, what, eight tracks? It's live at the Apollo. Every 
Apollo is the product of years on the road, years spent perfecting his craft, the perfection that he demanded from his band, the perfection that he demanded from himself. Every gesture, every move, every dance step was choreographed to emphasize the music in concert with the music. He wasn't just a dancer or a singer. He was a performer. And I think Live at the Apollo captures that. You know, one of the uh, the things, too, that I'll, I'll throw out there for the listeners in terms of performance is that James Brown, one of the, the reasons that he did the Cape Act was because he was enamored with the professional wrestler Gorgeous George. <laughs> when he saw the response that he would get, the negative response, Brown loved it. It was over the top. It was uh, flamboyant. It was capes, right? It was the collapsing in the ring and the, the performance before the match. And Brown absolutely fell in love with that. So um, the performance aspect of the album is really what it is exemplified. And that's why he bet on himself and financed the entire record. Uh, the other thing about the record that I'll point out is the cover art itself. James Brown is not shown. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it looks like a night at the opera, not the Queen album, but it looks like a night at the opera when it comes to people who actually are going into a theater to hear James Brown, whose name's on the marquee. That's going to appeal to white people, too. You don't. Yeah, it's an interesting cover because, I mean, the marquee is all very clear, but for the people on the street going in, uh, ambiguous in terms of their race, ambiguous in terms of their class, and right. impressionistic in style. You know, the background, they're a bunch of like kind of vague brushstrokes. It doesn't look like an actual theater and the people moving in, like also just kind of kind of vague brushstrokes that are the silhouettes of people. So it, it, it does appeal kind of to like, you know, that this is a, a high art. Yes. Like a jazz record, maybe. This is uh, a word that Brown used sometimes that I think would apply to this album. When you saw it, when you heard it, it was authentic. It was the authentic sound of the the South and its musical um, offerings at a time in which America was coming unglued in 1963 with the Birmingham campaign, with the March on Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you don't get the sense that James Brown is a black musician from looking at the album cover. So, you know, I, I, I think that's fascinating in, in the way that it was presented because the presentation of the album itself had a lot to do with how it was displayed in stores and how it was marketed. I'm a 
For an album recorded on James Brown's own dime in October of 1962 at a notoriously live and loud venue, it is a great sounding album. The, 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 the live recording sonically is, is such a faithful uh, representation. It is mixed beautifully. Um, it, it demonstrates what a great band it is. And really, after this, for the next 10 years, you're really going to see that kind of growth of live albums and studios and, and um, uh, uh, record labels really investing money in live albums. And some of the most famous live albums that are going to come out over the next 10 years don't sound as good as this. Yeah. And I mean, compare it to Sam Cooke's Life of the Harlem Square Club, 1963, or Otis Redding's Live in London from 67, or Live you know, in Person at Whiskey A Go Go, 1968. Right. Those records don't sound like this record, and they don't even sound as good as this record. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know if it's because it's it's this venue and it's that audience, and but I think mostly it's because it's James Brown and that band. Uh, because what you're hearing is not just like, like oh, it's a set. Like it's not like when you find like oh yeah, there's there's, there's this Dylan bootleg, and you're like wow, that sounds pretty good, and that's the whole show, huh? Like there are no bumps in this set. Like it, like it, it's not even that it's like a live recording of a James Brown show. It is an act and it is an act that is separated by these uh, continuing musical interludes with the horns that keep the momentum going. I mean, you know, the, the last track is night train, but I mean, the whole thing moves with the momentum of a train. Like even, even when it dips down to the slow ballad stuff, it's still picked up with the, you know, it just swings and it really, really swings. And it's, it's, it's great because it, it, it is a show. It's not a concert, right? Like th this is a show, you know, it, it is, it is, it is orchestrated. It is controlled it is maintained. And, but even within there, right, because the band is so good and because the band is so tight and because James Brown is so in control, you can have these moments where he kind of breaks form a little bit addresses the audience like a minister. It's like, have you ever loved someone? You know, and people are just going, yes, you, I love you. And he's like, have you ever heard someone? You know, like it, it is that minister thing. And it's that the sacred and the profane again, because now it's not about, do you love Jesus? It's, you know, is there someone out there who you love? And they, of course, it's all coming back on him. Right. So yeah, it's, it's, it is this great moment where all those things are coming together. Right the tightness of the band, the fact that this is a, not just a concert, but a show, like a, a tightly well-orchestrated show. And, but also having the person of James Brown every now and then kind of break that fourth wall, reach into the audience and then hearing them go absolutely ecstatic is great. And it's, it's during a time, you know, when you attribute this kind of thing only to the Beatles, like, oh, yeah, well, girls would just faint when they would see the Beatles. And then before that, it was like, oh, girls would just faint when they'd see Elvis. There, there's somebody else in the middle there, right? 
and that's James Brown. And maybe it's not talked about because he's a black man and it's black women who are, you know, young black women who are fainting over him. Um, so maybe, maybe that's why I guess missed that conversation. But I think that's important, um, especially when we talk, you know, when we're tracking historically, right, uh, black male sexuality, right, as it's being performed on stage and recorded uh, on music. I think that's an important document for that. But to have this person, this band, that audience, that venue, there's so many, uh, 19, May 1963, right? So, I mean, this is a, a, a pivotal moment uh, in, in American history, right? So there, there are just so many factors happening that make this just an incredible historical document. On the other end of that, it's only eight tracks. There are eight killer tracks, Right. I mean, this, I mean, is there a better version of, of try me? No, I don't think so. Um, a better version of I don't mind. I don't think so. I mean, I mean, it's, it's bananas. I even, I, probably even this version of night train, um, in the medley that kicks off with please, please, please. I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. just the, the music is there too. So it's not just about the history, uh, but the songs are, are there and they're, incredible and yeah like, like you were saying dr butler right um they're elevated from what you have heard on the studio tracks they are much more elevated because he's there and they're adding in these kind of nuances that aren't on the track where he might scream and then it's followed by right the horns the snare and the cymbal all hitting together ow boom ow boom right and that again that comes back to the sexuality of it Right. It, it is it is orgasmic. It is ecstatic. Right. And that's something that's not always on the record. Right. That's something that is being created there for you in the room. Rob, I think we're, I think we said in our season one, before we talk about James Brown, that it is more exciting to watch James Brown than just to sit down and listen 100%. to James Brown, because he's just the most, you know, just electric, right. Performer at the time, right. Until mm-hmm. he, you know, until, until Michael Jackson, who 
go to 1969, right? Even though he's coming out of Motown, young Michael is doing all James Brown moves. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's the, the young Michael, the young Michael, that's all he's doing is he's, he's doing an eight year old or 11 year old's impression of James Brown. Yeah. And doing great. Well, to your point, you know, there are a couple of things that you mentioned there, Micaiah, that I think are worth pointing out for the listeners. Go back and look at the, uh, the album cover and, and it says the James Brown show. Mm-hmm. Right. So to your point, yeah, James Brown's name's on the side of the marquee, but it is the James Brown show. Uh, it was often before uh, it went national. They called themselves the James Brown Review. So the review, the show part of this, the synergy between the songs, the way that they uh, lead into each other. You're absolutely right about that. Um, the other thing that I'll mention is that the Famous Flames are the band. It's James Brown and the Famous Flames. Yeah. The Famous Flames, um, that was the band that James Brown joined after he got out of reform school. This is 1953. They had been together for a decade playing hundreds of shows a year. This was probably the tightest version, most cohesive version of any group Brown had put together um, following this, right? So this is the pinnacle of that well-oiled musical and performance machine at their very top. Other thing is because of um, uh, this album, the next year, James Brown performs live at the Tammy Award show, right? Mm -hmm. So this is where Mick Jagger, you know, the the whole uh, story about Mick Jagger and James Brown being exposed for the first time to a predominantly white teenage audience. This album is going to be the reason that he's featured on that performance the next year. So for the, all the reasons that you've mentioned, this takes Brown from a studio performer to an electrifying live performer. And it's going to open doors that previously um, just didn't exist for him on the national and even international level. This is this is one of those those things for me where um, I'm I'm almost tempted to say we don't even have to talk about top twenty all time greatest hits because I'm I'm just convinced as we're talking that it needs to be live the Apollo, um, <laughs> and and here's and here's why here's why okay so admittedly my favorite James Brown songs are not on this recording. But this is arguably the best live album ever. I mean, and it's certainly one of the most influential because this really does open up the floodgates for live albums to be something that can be a part of the career of a band that it's that the idea of a live album that's not just for classical music or jazz music, but but a live album for pop music for soul music for funk music for rock music all of that gets traced back to this album mm-hmm. and so i think just in terms of its importance in music history i i think that this recording is best and and if we're going to if if we're going to err on the side of of a more traditionally viewed as james brown album i think this is the one to go with that being said the benefit I think of, you know, 20 all time greatest hits, which is essentially the 20 track version of star time. The benefit of that is you get 
these great songs. And I think that when you're someone like James Brown, who has a career that spans as many decades as it did and where he didn't just put out albums, but he put out so many singles. So you think about how many songs on star time or how many songs on 20 all time greatest hits are never released on an album. They were released as 45s. They're released as singles and they're really great songs. And so I think that he is an artist, probably like a lot of artists of his generation. I think it's why when we talk about Chuck Berry, we're talking about an album like the great 28 and not a specific Chuck Berry album Mm -hmm. because artists of this era where as much as 50% of their music could come out, not on albums, but in the format of a single, I, I think that it's, it's worth us at least looking at the idea of a compilation because you, you have the opportunity to bring all that great music together. But I think live at the Apollo as an event, the idea of the recording of this event is so special and in the time that it comes out and as influential as it is. And again, we're talking about this band and how tight they are for anyone who's, for any of our listeners who's ever played in a band. I want you to think about this. This is 1962 recording equipment. This is 1962 recording equipment in arguably the loudest, most raucous live venue in America at the time. And this is a band consisting of 12 instrumentalists, James Brown and an additional three singers. And for this album just to sound this good is, I mean, I I don't think we can overstate this. This album only sounds this good because this band is, can play this tightly together. And and one of the things you were referencing the, the long break that he takes in the middle of lost someone where he kind of comes out and, and kind of does church for, for the Apollo theater, the band never loses a step. And not only do they not lose a step, they, they do it exactly how the band would perform with the pastor in a Pentecostal church that they're responding to what he's saying, that he's having this moment where he's for better, for lack of a better way of saying it, he's kind of preaching to the crowd, but he is the, the band is with him the whole way. There's these kind of stops and moments in the fact that it is so flawlessly recorded in October of 1962. I mean, really you can go and listen to in 1971, there's Aretha Franklin live at the Fillmore uh, at the Fillmore West. The same year is the famous Allman Brothers live recording live at the Fillmore East. Neither one of those albums sound as good as this, and they're made almost ten years later. It, it it blows my mind sonically how good this album sounds, and that's one of the things that is kind of the lingering thing that sits with me. Is for as much credit as we give James Brown for everything else. He's the producer on what might be the best sounding live album of all time. And when I say something that makes you feel good inside, when I say that little thing, I said that little part that might sting you in your heart now. I want to hear you scream. I want to hear you say, ow! I want to hear you say, ow! 
Don't just say I'll say ow. And I believe my work will be done. Just like a love to day I'm so weak I don't take my heart away Ow. But come on Come on I gee whiz I love you And don't go to strangers But come out home to me That's a great point, Rob. Um, I guess my question for y'all would be if it's pick one, does the person that we're recommending the record to make the difference? In other words, if it's somebody who is familiar with some of James Brown's work, but wants to know what makes him so dynamic, yeah, you go with Live at the Apollo. But if it's somebody who has never heard James Brown before, besides maybe uh, I feel good, I, I got you, I feel good, then maybe you go with the uh, the 20 all-time greatest hits. Um, it, it, to, you said something that really resonated with me, and that is that, you know, my favorite James Brown songs are not on Live at the Apollo. So, you know, look at the track list. Uh, I feel I got you. I feel good. Get up. I feel like being a sex machine. I got the feeling mother popcorn. Make it funky. Papa's got a brand new bag. It's a man's 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 world. Cold sweat, which again, we talk about funk and I haven't mentioned cold sweat. That's almost a cardinal sin. Um, <laughs> super bad. Hot pants. Get up off that thing. Please, please, please. You know, so you go through those and every single one at a different time is a bona fide reflection of the, the era. So for somebody who is not familiar with the catalog of James Brown, maybe the 20 all-time greatest hits is the one you choose. But if it's for somebody who knows where James Brown, who James Brown is, but just wants to know, okay, so what, what's the big deal? Live at the Apollo. And maybe the compilation would feel different if it were chronological order and you can kind of trace the evolution of James Brown. Great. Um, which I, yeah, because it, it jumps all over the place, and maybe that maybe that's another reason I don't love it as much. Um, and maybe that's the benefit of a live show is you you get the trajectory of the live show. Um, but yeah, th- that's kind of all my thoughts on, and, and also just because if I am as as a record collector, and by the way, I have a copy from the early to mid sixties. I don't know if it's a first press copy but i i have one from the 60s of uh, life of the apollo and a lot of records from that or that old don't sound great um it still sounds good the record sounds good this is not remastered this is not a re-release like the what's on that record from the 60s sounds great even on my turntable now right mm. that's something um but and I, and I say that to say that, you know, one of the great things about when we're talking about what are the great records is that this is a great record. I can go crate digging, find it and feel like I have, you know, a, a genuine treasure versus going like, oh, did you know that a few years ago, um, the CD 20 all time greatest hits, they started making it back when the vinyl a resurgence came out. They they press it on a double LP. It's like, oh, OK, well, I, I can go to any record store and I can find that deal in the shrink and open that up too 
which is fine. And and that's, it's fun to listen to it that way too. But when I think about great records, I am thinking about LPs a lot of the time that could be a flaw in my methodology for trying to nominate great records. Um, So that is one other reason why Live the Apollo uh, gets the edge for me over 20 all time greatest hits. I'm sure you have opinions. No, I'm, I'm but it, but here's the thing. I, I look. I, I agree with all of that. Um, I, I think that it, I think that the case for 20 all-time greatest hits is it's just it's just all my favorite James Brown songs. Now mm. the the you know again they're not performed live, and you miss something there, but you get you get more music. And for James Brown, I'm always a fan of more music. In fact, if it wasn't against our the rules that we originally set for the podcast, I would have just nominated the Star Time box set because that's I I want that much James Brown. That's how much I love this artist. Mm-hmm. That being said, it's it's hard to deny the things that are great about Live at the Apollo are uniquely great. Yeah, uh, twenty all time greatest hits is. I mean, I like that those particular songs, but it's not that much different than any of the other 30 other compilations of James Brown music that has, mm-hmm. that has been made. And so there is a uniqueness that's not there. And and I think that the, the thing to say about that is, of course, there's not a uniqueness to it because the songs that are on it are these huge hits are, are these songs that everyone knows these, these ubiquitous songs and these songs that whether you recognize, you know, them or not, these are songs that have been such a huge part of popular culture for the last 50, 60 years. And, and that's the, the blessing and the curse of a, a greatest hits collection is it's the music you already love. It's the music you already love, but, but I like this thinking about it from this idea of discovery Live at the Apollo feels like a discovery because there is something special that you're getting on that record that you're not getting, you know, from a radio station that decides they're going to do an hour of the best James Brown music, which is sometimes how 20 all time greatest hits can feel. 
in, uh, by the way, I would sign up to listen to that radio station all day long, every day. But I, I also Rob's one of these old fashioned guys who signs up for radio stations. <laughs> <laughs> well, to add to that, you know, I think it's kind of uh, uh, obvious which one we're going with. Uh, but live at the Apollo is just a masterpiece in American culture, period. It's not mm-hmm. just music history. It you look at a list of the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry, right? You look at Rolling Stone's all-time greatest lists. You look at basically any standard of excellence, not just within music, but the cultural realm, and it has been designated that, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that you won't see 20 greatest all-time hits recognized or inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame, but live at the Apollo is, I mean, it's, it is one of America's great cultural treasures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Well, Dr. Butler, we want to give you an opportunity as we do with every guest that we invite on to tell us, your top five albums. And I think in fairness, the last four guests we have had on, I think have gotten angry at us for the very idea of asking them this question, because um, as Makai and I will tell you, anytime you sit down and try to make a list of five favorite albums or five personal favorite albums or five underappreciated albums, anytime you sit down and try to make a list, um, you immediately end up with 20 when you're trying to make five. So we want to ask you, and again, we're going to leave it up to you, whether this is what you consider to be the best, what are your personal favorites, what are underappreciated, what you've been listening to lately. Um, But give us your top five albums that you would recommend for our listeners. You can't, you cannot have a greatest albums list of all time and not have Sergeant Peppers on it. I'm sorry for the same reasons that we've talked about, you know, live at the Apollo um, I think Live of the Apollo has to be on the top five. Um, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys has to be on that list. Um, oh, my gosh. Here we go. Now it gets difficult. Fleetwood Mac Rumors is the most 70s of all 70s albums. <laughs> That's a great album, though. <laughs> I mean, it is the 70s in a disc, right? Um Again, are we talking about culturally relevant? We talk. Uh, my list just keeps growing. Um, I know Mikhail. Welcome to the club. Yeah, right. Mikhail will appreciate Thriller. You got to have Thriller on it. I go back and forth between Actoon Baby and Joshua Tree. Uh, and and that's y'all. When you do that, when y'all are just gonna have to clear out. Have me back. I'll talk about <laughs> those two. Just clear out. You know, I'm gonna be like Kyrie with the ball. I'm not going to pass it to anybody. <laughs> um, it's going to be hero ball. Yeah, it, it, it's it, those two. I mean, Joshua Tree and Actoon Baby are just phenomenal. Um, never mind Nirvana. So I know I've gone over five, but <laughs> oh, man. I, you know, I'm going to have to think about my personal favorites. I'm going to have to think about historically significant, um, influential Mm. and just favorite you know i mean appetite for destruction is one of my all-time favorites because that is my childhood right (laughs) um it's so appetite for destruction has to be on there somewhere 
I'm just not sure where. And, you know, Thriller, obviously. Purple Rain soundtrack. I mean, it's just. Yeah. This is an impossible task. But if, if you if you nailed me down and said historically significant, okay, I can I can. I, I think we've if we went that route, maybe I could develop a much um, a much more satisfying top five list. Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. Get up, get on up, get up, get on up, stay on the scene, get on up, like a sex machine, get on up. Get on up, get up, get on up, stay on the scene, get on up, like a sex machine, get on up, wait a minute, shake your arm, then use your palm, stay on the scene, like a sex machine, you got to have the feeling, sure your bone, get it together, right on, right on, get up, get on up, get up, get on up. We are so glad that you came on today. We want to give you an opportunity, um, of course, as a professor and as dis- as a distinguished professor, you have um, some some publications and some journal articles. But wanted to know if there's anything you want to plug for our listeners, ways that they can stay up to date with what's going on with you, or anything that you'd ask our listeners to go and read or check out. Yeah, I, I mean, I always have my book to plug, uh, Beyond Integration, which is on the civil rights movement in Escambia County, Pensacola, Florida from 1960 to 1980. Um, I'm still really proud of that work, but um, yeah, I I have a a Twitter where hilarity often ensues. Um, It is at Dr. Dr. Underscore M. Butler. Um, And yeah, just follow me for pop culture references, um, history, news and notes and um i like to draw attention to how the past too often informs the present in terms of where we are as a country so uh yeah i, I have fun interacting with people uh, with that and um yeah i'm just working on a few things here and there and we'll see we'll see what happens but uh i, I appreciate the time this has been my honor it's uh yeah, great to see Micaiah following his passion because this was something that we we talked about a lot in my office. We talked about music history long before he took my rock and roll history class. Awesome. Well, Dr. Beller, it's it's a joy to see you again, and uh, we thank you so much for being being with us. And we're going to let you go, but have a great night. Sounds great. Sounds great. Thank you all so much. And Micaiah, don't stay buried in the closet, man. Come on. <laughs>
Rob, I I did not expect you to fold so easily and go toward Live at the Apollo because I know how much you love James Brown and I know how much you love James Brown's funk period in particular. And I know it must have hurt you to not have the funk artist James Brown represented on our list. So kind of walk me through kind of your feelings about that. Yeah. I, so really here's what it comes down to for me. Cause I, I think James Brown in my love of James Brown is so personal stepping away from my personal feelings about it and, and trying to think about it more objectively as we were talking, mm-hmm. I just found myself go, you know, not just agreeing with what you and Dr. Butler were saying about live at the Apollo, but then having praises for it, even, even in addition to and separate from what you all were talking about. And, and, you know, one of the things I brought up when we were talking with Dr. Butler is the thing that gets so little as people talk about live at the Apollo and as someone who loves music and who has spent so much time as a musician thinking about music and thinking about specifically the way live music is recorded. There is a technological and sonic quality to the recording at live at the Apollo that even if we weren't talking about it as a James Brown album, even if we were just talking about it as kind of the most influential album on the recording of live music, Mm. I think that would be worthy of being in our list Mm -hmm. and 20 all time greatest hits. That might be my, that might be my favorite collection of James Brown songs, but it's a compilation. So it should be what you gain in 20 all time greatest hits in it being the collection of great songs makes the album function more like, or makes a compilation function more like, a well-stocked jukebox rather than an album with a kind of whole unto itself. Mm. And live at the Apollo, especially listening to a historian talk about all of the ways in which this moment captured in time is meaningful on so many different levels. And then you add to that how great the album sounds. I, I think that makes it an obvious choice over, over a collection of songs, which I think is undeniable. The songs on 20 all-time greatest hits are better songs than the eight that are performed on Live at the Apollo. But you also don't get James Brown, the live performer, on 20 all-time greatest hits. And so much of what makes James Brown, whether it's the soul period or the funk period, so much of what makes James Brown who he is, is the live performance. We have listeners who are probably thinking they made the exact opposite point about Stop Making Sense, right? So it's like, well, Stop Making Sense is a live album too. So why didn't we just include stop making sense if we also think that stop making sense is the best kind of representation of talking heads then why that over their studio albums i wonder if anyone's gonna challenge us on that 
Sure. But, but I also think that, and you and I have talked about this, if the 15th anniversary CD release, the deluxe CD release of mm-hmm. Stop Making Sense, that includes all of the songs that are featured in the movie. If that was the original LP release, then then I would wholeheartedly have argued not for Remain in Light or Fear of Music. I would have argued for Stop Making Sense. I think because as short as a recording as Live at the Apollo is, you're also getting the totality of that evening's performance. So it, it, it is a full concert experience that you're getting. It is a full show, to use the language that, that you mentioned. You're getting the full show in Live at the Apollo. The album version of Stop Making Sense does not provide you with that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But listeners, feel free to at us. Normally, podcasts will say, don't at me. This is the podcast where we encourage you, please, at us, right? Reach out on You Forgot One Pod at Twitter or at You Forgot One on Instagram. Let us know what you think about uh, this episode on James Brown. Should it have been 20 all-time grace hits? Should we make an exception to our no box set rule and make room for star time? Oh, I'd like that. Please, please, someone send us... Someone out there, send us a message to let us know that that's your call because that's that's what I'd really prefer. Or, I mean, is it another later studio album like The Payback, which great is album. also a great studio album of his from start to finish that's like 10 years after. Mm-hmm. Right, Live the Apollo. All great stuff. Um, also, uh, you can... Follow us on Apple Podcasts. I think that's the language now. I think you follow and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Find us on Spotify or whatever and subscribe, uh, rate, and review uh, so other people can help find the show. Uh, It helps us greatly. Thank you. We're going to leave you now with my favorite song from 20 All-Time Greatest Hits. Baby, give it up or turn it loose. 